Hi, Skeeter. Skeeter, I love you. Skeeter, look, look over here. Oh, Skeeter. Hi. Oh. I know. I know. You ever think that he's so cute that you might just like spontaneously combust? Yeah, or else like squeeze him to death. Yeah. Yeah, or like scanner style, your head will explode. There'd be some sort of implosion or explosion or squeeze. Or... Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Oh my God, Skeeter. Is he upset today? Yeah, yeah. I'm visiting my parents. Grunge girl is away. So you're like dog sitting. I'm dog sitting and it was my mom's birthday. So I came with the dog and, and there's a person painting like part of the house and my grandfather's here it's a lot of excitement for this little pupper it sounds like it. it sounds like more than little skeeter can handle yeah he's tweaking oh so that's part of how you are you're in a maelstrom of familial obligation and romantic obligation and canine chaos yeah basically anything else going on how are you I'm good. I mean, I'm eating carrots right now and feeding carrots to Skeeter, so. That's cute. I'm trying to think. Is there anything else? Is there anything else worth saying? Grunge Girl is away. Our famous podcast model. That's right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the dog is, that. that's all that matters, so. That's the main thing of life. How are you, Hala? Hashem. I am well. The other day, I found a new cute dress on clearance at Target, so that's really lifted my whole week. <laughs> That's nice. Binya and I have been doing registration for our next class. So listeners, if you want to learn about the halacha of Hanukkah, go sign up for that. My boyfriend has been having a little bit of a hard time at his job. He's been feeling sad. And that's been sad. That's sad. But then last night we watched, there's like a new Sopranos movie called The Many Saints of Newark that just came out and he's really into The Sopranos so we watched that movie and that cheered him up a little bit. It was weird for me. I was like, I don't understand anything that's happening here. Do you know if he's watched The Sopranos spinoff where one of the dudes goes to Finland or Norway or something like that? (laughs) I don't know about that. I'll have to ask him. It's like surreal. I've only seen one episode of The Sopranos ever and it was one that he showed to me so... I'm very ignorant of the Sopranoverse. It's fine. Yeah, honestly, at least in this movie, the violence and death were like too real. They weren't like fantastical enough for me to sit through them. So I actually found it a little bit challenging. Yeah, I mean, I think the show, I mean, it appeals to a... A certain audience, a certain stream of the American male. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're definitely, you know, dating a man. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's a fact. Yeah, I don't know. Loving the fall. The fall is upon us, I feel. Or like the first, the sort of like fake fall where it gets cool for a while before we have a couple random warm days. Yep. So I love that. How are you feeling in general? Like existentially, like state of the world, your relationship to the impending doom? Oh, gosh. You know, sort of fluctuating between numbness and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like either I am dissociated from the existential doom or I am like accepting that I'm doing what I can about it. And that's like all I can do and no amount of self-flagellation will like help. I'm really deep in like a self-masochistic dive into like the collapse Reddit. Oh, no. I know, I know. I gotta extract Michael. myself. It's bad. It's no, bad. come back. I know, no. and I've been listening to too much like Chapo, so I'm like real depressed about the state of the world. Any amount 
it's too much for me. Yeah, it's not it's not kind of your kind of show, but you know. I'm going to like beef with them, see if we can start a podcast feud. <laughs> that would be so good for us. Yeah, that would be really good for our publicity. If you guys are listening, just beef with us, please. Like, we'll offend you somehow. Yeah. But, uh, oh my God, Skeeter, shut up. Skeeter, come here. Come here. Come here. Oh, okay. Go talk. Okay, relax. Oh my gosh. Relax. relax. Oh, good little Oh my God. Gosh. Content, baby. Content right here. Content. Enjoy the content. Should we jump into some Talmud? I think it's a special day today. Yeah, we have a meaty topic to talk about today. No pun intended. Isn't it weird how no pun intended is like the signal of a pun? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Also, I don't get the pun. Oh, because, well, we'll see if you get it as we go on. Okay. It would be right. crass to explain it. Before we get started on our Talmud this week, listeners, just a trigger warning and content warning that this week's Talmud will deal with homophobia, with sex and gender categories, discussion of intersex issues, sexual abuse will be mentioned, although not discussed in explicit detail. Also, just lots of weird biological essentialism from Talmudic and biblical culture will come up. So take care of yourself. Make the right choice for you. Mm -hmm. If listening to a a Talmud episode that discusses those things would be bad for you, then take care of yourself. And we're glad that you did. Okay. All right. Let's get into this. I've been told we have a listener question. Yes, we do have a listener question. A listener sent us this message asking, could a male who's not able to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex be considered a saris? It seems that there might be a precedent, at least in first century Judea, since the Christian New Testament Jesus says there are three types of eunuchs, one of which is someone who makes themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I highly doubt he was instructing people to castrate themselves. Also, would a saris be considered a zachar? What about an ish? Thanks. You guys rock. Thank you, listener. You rock as well. This is a question with a lot of stuff to go into about it. So there's a lot. There's a lot of different entry points that we might have. One of the parts of the question is, could a man who's not able to be attracted to women be considered a saris, which in in rabbinic Hebrew is a eunuch? And we'll talk more about that. So that's question one. That's part of this. Question two, that's a part of this, is whether a saris is a part of these two other gender and sex categories of zachar and ish. And then question three is sort of a hidden question that we'll get into at the very end. Is the hidden question, why are we even asking this question to begin with? Yes, we'll get to that once we define all our terms. Okay, okay. So we are trying to equate current categories of gender and sexuality to ancient categories of gender and sexuality. I don't think our listener is trying to equate. I think our listener is approximating, which is, I think, a safe quest. For those of you who don't know, in the Talmud, there's all kinds of gender and sex categories beyond man and woman. They all sort of have varying halachic responsibilities. The main way in which they sort of exist in Talmud is like as different areas of obligation. Where you fall within this map of gender and sex says a lot about your halachic obligations. So we'll start with a little bit of Talmud from Yevamot 79b to sort of get into an example of that and talk about what's up with the saris. That'll start introducing us to this whole mess that we're going to get into today. 
Okay, great. So, Amar Rabbi Yehoshua, Shomati shehasaris cholitz wa cholitzin leishto, wahasaris lo cholitz wa lo cholitzin leishto, wahain li lefish. Rabbi Yehoshua says, I have heard two things. One is that a eunuch performs cholitza and that his brothers perform chalitza with his wife. And the other is that a eunuch, a saris, does not perform chalitza, and a saris does not perform chalitza with his wife. And I can't explain why I've heard these two directly contradictory things. Okay, so first tell us what chalitza is. Yes. So, Yevamot is a masechet that's dealing mostly with this idea of leverit marriage, which is like when your brother dies, if you are halachically a man, you might be obligated to marry his widow under certain circumstances. Okay, so this wouldn't necessarily hold for other gender categories. Exactly. What the rabbis, specifically what Rabbi Yehoshua is trying to figure out in this moment is, does a saris take on this halachic responsibility or not? Because my understanding in this text is that saris is sort of man proximate, and we're trying to figure out what parts of man halacha ish halacha go onto the saris and which ones don't. Okay, okay. So chalitza is this sort of wild ritual that is described in Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10. But if a man does not want to marry his brother's widow, his brother's widow shall appear before the elders in the gate and declare, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name in Yisrael for his brother. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother. The elders in his town shall then summon him and talk to him. If he insists, saying, I do not want to marry her, the brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and make this declaration. Thus shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and he shall go in Israel by the name of the family of the unsandaled one. Whoa. Obviously, I think it's clear that's a whole episode in itself of wild stuff. That's awesome. But just know, chalitza is this ritual that is performed to sort of release someone of the obligation of marrying their brother's widow. If you're never obligated to marry the widow in the first place, you don't need to perform a ritual to release yourself. And so that's what's at issue in Rabbi Yehoshua's question is, is someone who is halachically a saris, which is not a man, obligated to do this under Torah law or not? Okay, okay. So we're ascending back up. Rabbi Yehoshua has heard two conflicting opinions about this, and he doesn't know how to resolve them. One opinion is yes, and one opinion is no. The reason that this is a conflict is because when Rabbi Yehoshua phrases these opinions in a particular way, it means I've heard two opinions either from my teacher or from two equally authoritative sources. So he's heard two opinions from sources that aren't allowed to be in conflict in our Talmudic worldview. Okay. And that's why we have this whole issue on Yevamot 79b. We continue. Rabbi Akiva said, Rabbi Akiva, Ani Afrish, I will explain. Saris Adam a saris, a eunuch who is created, caused by man, he does, they do, whatever the halachic pronoun is for this person, the saris, in that case, does chalitza. They are obligated to do the ritual of releasing the widow. Okay. Because they had an hour of fitness, a.k.a. a time at which they were fertile, a.k.a. a time at which they could have been a halachic man. Okay. Whereas 
Someone who is a sarik by natural causes from birth does not perform chalitza because they did not ever have an hour in which they had the potential to be a halachic man. Mm, okay, all right. I brought in that source to show like how Talmud relates to the idea of saris, what's going on with them halachically, and also just like the weird and complicated mess that this is and how we can't obviously map our modern gender and sexual categories directly onto this because these sort of categories have more to do with halacha than anything else, in my opinion. They do sort of show, a, I would say, a more creative thinking about gender and sexuality than we have in like Western society today. Mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. creative and like open thinking, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's like, oh, this one is a trans woman. This one is a trans man. Yeah. It seems like it's less about defining what that particular person is and rather just saying that if that person is the of this category, this is what you should be doing in these particular circumstances. Yes. I would say the concern of the Talmud is less about like the nature of our being and more about our role in society. Right, right. AKA our halacha. So this whole question of Saris from birth and Saris made by man connects to what our listener was bringing up from the Christian New Testament. They reference a verse from the Christian New Testament. They say there might be a precedent for other categories of Saris. In Matthew 19.12 from Christian Bible, Jesus says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who can choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The phrasing, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs, is a little bit of a gloss. The direct translation is more like, there are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So, basically, the reason our listener brings this in is because if we think of Jesus as sort of a citizen of Talmudic society, in some sense, right, we might use these words of his to make some guesses about whether there were other people who were experienced as saris in that society. Sure. Because what we're trying to figure out is whether what we would think of as a gay man today could be a saris in Talmudic dialogue. So we're finally going to get to why our listener might be so concerned about whether a gay man fits into the category of saris, a.k.a. eunuch, or into some other biblical sexual and gender category. In Leviticus 20.13, which is one of the two famous places in Tanakh where this verse comes up, we read, If a man lies with a male, as one lies with a woman, the two of them have done an abhorrent thing. They shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. So this is, uh, you know, quoted by many homophobic cultural group, you know, Christian and Jewish alike, as a biblical prohibition against homosexuality. So the reason that our listener is probably interrogating this is because in this verse, there are two gender slash sex categories that are being invoked. One is an ish in the phrase, if a man lies, the man who is doing the lying is the category of ish, which we always translate as man in Bible. And then the object, the one being lied with, is a zahar, which is a word that is a little bit more anatomical, which we politely translate here as male. So this verse is not ish to ish, it's ish to zahar. So a man and a male. Because a saris, a eunuch, necessarily involves 
some either difference from birth of genital anatomy or difference acquired later in life of genital anatomy, we have to wonder whether they fall under the category of Zahar, right, right? right? And whether they are therefore exempt from this prohibition. Why I think the reader might be thinking about this is because they're hoping to find a textual way out of this verse and into a more queer positive experience of Torah. Okay, okay. Yes, I, I, I see what's going on here. Ooh, that is a tricky uh, problem to uh, put yourself in. That's, this is getting to the last part of our listener's question. Would a Saris be considered a Zahar? What about an Ish? Because we had this category introduced by our Christian New Testament verse about eunuchs for the sake of heaven, right? We're sort of wondering, could a gay man be in this third category of eunuch as a sort of halachic workaround of this mm. verse? We're going to go to the rabbis first and see a little bit of what they have to say on this verse. So the rabbis on Sanhedrin 54a say, Zachar, minalan, Zachar, what does this have to do with anything? Where do we get this whole thing about intercourse with the Zachar? The sages say this verse, 2013, the word Ish comes to exclude a minor boy. The word Zachar comes to say either an adult or a minor. And the last part, which is as they lie with a woman, which weirdly is in a plural verb construction, comes to teach that there are two manners that were prohibited from lying with a prohibited woman, either vaginal or anal intercourse. I'm going to break it down. Okay, break it down for me. So the sages are saying the first gender category, ish, comes to tell us that the person who's subject to this law is an adult man in charge of his own faculties, you know, basically to say that is who is able to be held accountable to this halachic principle. And then the word zahar, the sages say, comes to specify that it's punishable whether the person who's lied with is an adult or a minor. So they read zahar in an expansive sense as not saying only minor, but rather adult or minor. Okay. And... This is where I get into my quibble with the sages, because the word Zahar, we could have equally said with equally good reasoning, comes to say this verse is a punishment for someone who's involved in sexual abuse of a minor, right? Because Zahar, we could read that gender category as referring to someone who has the halachic potential to be a man, but is not. Right, right. Instead of an, an in, instead of an inclusive term, Zahar could be just the specific category of person that is a child. Right. This is why I have a quibble with the sages, because I don't think their reading of Zahar as a broad term has any specific merit more so than our reading of a narrow term. Basically, what I'm saying is I think the sages' interpretation is skewed by the homophobia inherent in their society and is not sort of truer to the text in any meaningful way or maybe they're like hiding the hidden meaning like that's like level seven judaism yeah there could be some crazy quantum judaism going on as well 12th dimensional judaism chess going on here you know. <laughs> so already we've discovered one way we might read ourselves out of this verse 
with minimal, minimal reinterpretation. Okay, so instead of doing this weird transitive property where like I'm going to equate a gay guy to a, a sorry, I'm just going to like sidestep the whole thing and be like the original ruling that I'm not into, I can read this other way. Right, exactly. And we have the sort of authority to do that, in my opinion, within the world of Jewish law. Also, there was just a tail end part of our Gemara that was a little bit confusing, which is having to do with Mishkave Isha, which this is not directly relevant to our question of the day, but basically it says like, if a man lies with a minor as with the lyings of a woman rather than the lying of a woman. So there's a question about why that verb is plural. The rabbis say that verb is plural because it's there to teach us this sort of incidental halacha that if a woman is nida, aka prohibited because she's on her period, you're not allowed to have anal intercourse either. Basically, they think that that plural verb comes to say, don't think that it's just vaginal intercourse that's prohibited on the period. It's also anal. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean you are allowed to have anal? No, not both prohibited. Any, any lyings of any kind. No, no, wait, hold on. Is there any time where you can have anal and it's cool? Yes, we're going to, next week, we're going to have a whole episode just about anal. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Great. Okay, <laughs> love it. Because that is a, another sort of relevant part of this question. So okay, okay. what we are going to find out today by virtue of sources inspired by our listener question is whether the relationship between a man and a man is permissible. And... That will still leave us one other question, which is whether then anal sex between them is permissible, right? Okay. okay. There's two two halachic parts to this question. Right, 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 right. Is the relationship itself permissible and what sexual activities are permissible? So stay tuned for week two. We have our one solution here. I'm going to bring in even some more solutions. So I'm going to read a little quote from Jay Michelson, who is this famous gay Jewish writer and teacher and person uh, from an article he wrote called How Can You Be Gay and Jewish, which obviously is relevant to this discussion. So Jay Michelson says in this article, Leviticus 18, another clarification, this verse occurs in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20. Jay Michelson is referencing a previous version of this verse, but it's the same wording. Leviticus 18 is only about sexual violence and humiliation. In the misogynistic culture to which the Torah was given, to be sexually penetrated was a form of degradation. Leviticus 18 demands that this degradation never be visited upon another man. This explains the usage of the word et and the strange locution mishkave isha. It refers to doing something humiliating to a man. If the prohibition meant something other than degradation, it would have said im adam with a man, rather than et Adam, which means roughly to or at a man. Thus, the only male-male sex acts which can be characterized as being done et Adam, at a man, are forbidden. As Rabbi Steve Greenberg develops in his book, where penetration has none of the earmarks of violence or humiliation, as in a loving relationship between men in our culture, this prohibition does not apply. So, the J. Michelson slash Rabbi Steve Greenberg solution is this. The verb to lie, yishkav, in this case, is followed by the direct object marker of et, which means essentially in English to do something to or at someone rather than cooperatively with them. And so the case that they are making is that because the rest of this text surrounding this prohibition is all about 
forbidden sexual relationships, sexual assault, incest, things like that, we can understand contextually that this is probably about an act of violence and humiliation because of its context. And so we can use this word et to build our case that this is referring to a specific kind of sexual contact that is different from a relationship between two consenting adult gay men. Do you grok that? Yeah, this is very similar actually to what we talked about with the clothing and the head covering thing. If you interpret the law to not actually be about the literal activity that's happening in space and time, and actually about like the mental states of the people in that society, what the mental states would be if they were to do that, then, you know, women can go uncovered in, in Morocco and, like, you can have as much gay sex as you want. It's very, very similar. Absolutely. I, re- I never thought of that comparison, but I really love it. I think that's a great bridge to build between the two episodes. To summarize, we have been trying to read our way out of Leviticus 2013. We've come up with a couple strategies. One, we can understand the category of Zahar as referring to minors, which is, to me, a very strong possible textual interpretation. And basically, that means this verse is about sexual abuse of a minor rather than consensual gay sex. Two, we can do the Michelson-Greenberg defense and understand it to be about a societal context of humiliation. And Mm -hmm. that gets us out of this. Three, and this is also one that I think always has to be introduced, we can just say, you know what? This verse is homophobic, and it sucks, and I reject it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can do that. We should always remember that that is an option, that we can just accept that some parts of things that have been a part of Judaism, they just suck, and they just are bad, and we can just know them and learn them and reject them. And that's okay. You don't have to do the thing. Exactly. You don't have to participate in the game, or you can play the game in your own way. To me, it's a productive process for thinking about the culturally and societally constructed nature of sexuality yeah, and yeah. gender. And like it is enriching on a soul level, IMHO, to play the game. Yep, yep, yep. And then finally, we have the sort of one that our listener subtly introduced in their question, which I think is a very creative reading. For me, it's not my favorite solution, but the solution is we can understand gay men as saris, as eunuchs, and therefore exempt because they are not in either of these sexual categories. To me, this leaves a lot of loose ends. We still are left with the question of what are saris permitted to do? We're still left with the question of what about men who are not exclusively gay? What about bisexual men? Where would they fall in this spectrum? And so... To me, it is not my favorite solution, but it is an innovative and interesting way to think about the problem. It also requires a lot of steps, and each step you take is subject to criticism, to potential pitfalls. Right. The more complicated your solution, the more ways people can argue with it. I do think this kind of transitive, equating modern categories to ancient categories, you could use this as an escape hatch, logically, to say that like trans women can like do whatever the hell they want. Yes, yes. There's all kinds of other things we could build off this. Yeah, yeah, sure. So that is a basic summary of our thing. So to our listener, I just want to say to me, I do not think that a gay man would fall into the category of Saris. To me, these 
halakhic categories have a lot more to do with biological and bodily properties rather than behavioral properties. That being said, I think there are valid arguments to be made. So your question, listener, was, could a male who's not able to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex be considered saris? My answer would be yes, but I don't think that's the most efficient way to go about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope this episode has provided you some other ways to think about it that hopefully are enriching. Wow. Wow. (sighs) I'm tired from that. No, that's a doozy. That's a doozy. It is a doozy. Next week, we're going to have a whole episode about anal sex and sexual privacy. That's sort of going to be a part two of dealing with this issue. So stay tuned for that, because that is also going to be really interesting and fun. Buckle up, snowflakes. Yeah. So that's our episode. Thanks for sticking with us for this journey. Next week, we'll talk all about butt sex and what Jewish culture throughout the ages have thought about it. We got merch. Go get a t-shirt. It's really cute. If you're a patron, you can get our merch for cost. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Send us your questions. We want to answer more and more listener questions, especially if you've been thinking for yourself, I have a question for Hi, How Are You? But it's just about something mundane, not about a specific element of Jewish law. Send us those questions. Oh, yeah. We want them. We can always make it about Jewish law. Send us questions about what you should wear today. You know, just send us all kinds of questions, not just Jewish law questions. Think of it as like dipping your toe into learning how to socialize again. Yeah, exactly. During, you know, pandemic. Think of us as Miss Manners. What's Miss Manners? Miss Manners? Oh, maybe not everyone grew up with that. She was a popular etiquette columnist in, in the South. That's ridiculous. Dear Abby, I guess this may be a more universal reference. Anyway, just think of us as advice columnists. You guys are awesome. It has been a pleasure and an honor to make this episode for you. And Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.